Thank you, Gary and Patty, and uh, thank you for going to Zimbabwe on behalf of our church uh, to, to help encourage Kathy and Major and some of the other people there and all those pastors. I mean, <coughs> one of the things I learned about that report was just how holistic the ministry there is in Africa. I mean, it's not just the Chittimoyo Hospital, it's the, the schools and it's the 62 churches that those 10 pastors go out to. I also heard that there was another church that uh, bought uh, five motorcycles for these pastors to be able to ride, to get around, and um, a lot of the pastors didn't know how to ride the motorcycles, so they had to learn, <laughs> and one pastor, I heard a report where he like fell down twice on the way home, uh, but he got back up and uh, rode his motorcycle and kept on trucking, so good for him. That's really great. Hey, we are starting a new series this morning, so I invite you, if you guys want to follow along in your Bibles, uh, in your pew Bibles, uh, those black holy Bibles, uh, you can turn to page 1157, because we're going to be, for the next number of weeks, in the book of 2 Corinthians. Our series is called, We Have This Treasure. It comes right out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where Paul's talking about his own limitations as a human being in, in ministry, and he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay, in jars of clay. So we're going to just jump right in right now. So um, let me go ahead and pray for the message. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege that it is to stand up and, and to be able to preach and teach your word to your people and I pray, Father, for the unction and the filling and the zeal and the passion of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray like we sang before, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here, and now come and fill this place with your atmosphere. We want to glorify you, and we want your glory to be made known. And so, Lord, we're asking your Holy Spirit to come and to speak to us, uh, speak truth into our lives, uh, show us what we're doing right, show us what we're doing wrong, and Lord, help us, each one of us, to figure out how to take a next spiritual step to grow closer in our walk with you. So bless this message as it goes out, and we pray in Jesus' name. Oh, and also, Father, we are mindful of two people in our church who are ill and in need of our prayers. I mean, one was obvious because we didn't have a drummer. And so we do lift up Larry Jacobs to you. He's got a major scratch in one of his eyes. And we're asking you to bring healing to him and uh, give him that eyesight and help him to heal whatever was damaged in his eye yesterday. And then, Lord, we're mindful of our sister, Linda Twitchell, who's had surgery earlier this week. Father, would you please comfort her in her pain? Lord, she's experienced so much pain in the last few days, and please help her uh, ease her pain. Lord, help the medical team to figure out exactly what kind of procedure, what kind of medication, what kind of therapy that would be most helpful to her to be able to recover quickly. And then also, Lord, uh, comfort her husband, Bill, who's right there by her side and in some ways suffering right along with her. So we ask for healing for our sister, Linda. And we lift these prayers up to you together as God's people. And we say, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, if you had a graduating class of outstanding people, you might have a, a graduating class that would include some, some of these notable accomplishments. Someone who's a philosopher. Someone who is a theologian. Someone who's a musician. Someone who's a philanthropist. You might 
uh, even have a Nobel Prize winner. Uh, those would be the stars of an extraordinary graduating class. But this, this particular truth is even more astounding. All of these accomplishments were done by one individual. One individual, it's the resume of one man. His name is Dr. Albert Schweitzer. He lived from 1875 to 1965. He was renowned for his philanthropic work, his medical work, as a mission doctor in West Central Africa. More than half of his 90 years were spent in West Africa serving the poor. And he became, Dr. Schweitzer, an icon of noble, selfless service for generations. His biographer, Norman Cousins, wrote about him. He said, I learned about him, like all great figures in history, Dr. Schweitzer becomes real, not despite his frailties, but because of his frailties. What I learned about him is that a man does not have to be an angel to be a saint. We're going to discover in this very human letter of 2 Corinthians that God does some amazing work through not-so-angelic saints. And we're going to see that as God worked through the life of the Apostle Paul that God can also take our weaknesses and our frailties and God can turn them into platforms for the demonstration of His power and His glory. Let's learn a little bit more about the Apostle Paul as we're beginning this letter. What do we know about the Apostle Paul? You know, there are few lives in the Bible and certainly no life in the New Testament other than Jesus Himself who looms larger than the life of the Apostle Paul. You take a look at his impressive resume, and this is what Paul wrote about himself in his letter to the Philippian church. He's talking about his background before Paul became a follower of Jesus. He was a very devout Jew, and so he talks about his history and what he, who he was. He said he was born in Tarsus, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. If you know anything about Israelite history, Benjamin and Judah were the only two faithful tribes from the southern kingdom as the 10 other tribes were apostate in the north. So he's saying, hey, I was one of the good tribes. Uh, he was a tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And in regard to keeping the law of Moses, the Torah, Paul said that he was a Pharisee. He, he adhered to the strictest sect of the Jewish religion, being a Pharisee. As for zeal, Paul thought that he was the most zealous for God that there ever was because he even persecuted the church. He thought that Christianity was a false religion and he tried to stamp it out. And before he was Paul the Apostle, he was Saul the Terrible. And he was on his way to the road uh, to Damascus to persecute more Christians when God met him on the way. So Paul says, if you want to know about zeal, I was persecuting the church. If you want to know about legalistic righteousness before God... Paul says he himself was faultless, faultless as far as keeping the law. But then Paul goes on to say in Philippians 3, and he says, you know what? All that stuff, all that keeping the law, all that zeal for God, it really amounts to nothing. Because Paul says, I consider all of that rubbish compared to the, uh, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So Paul, instead of trying to be righteous before God by keeping all of God's commandments, Paul accepted the righteousness of God through putting his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so before Paul's conversion, 
uh, Paul is now on the road to Damascus. He's trying to stamp out the church everywhere he goes. And God used that moment right outside the city of Damascus to strike down Paul by blinding him so that then God could lift up Paul to some amazing heights and use him in amazing ways as an apostle, as an evangelist, as a pastor, as a missionary. And finally, at the end of his life, Paul gave his life to the full as a Christian martyr in the city of Rome. There was no one who was more committed to the cause of Christ than St. Paul. So was Paul a saint? Without question. Was Paul an angel? Well, according to Paul's words, Paul wasn't so much of an angel. Paul describes himself before he became a follower of Jesus, and he says this in 1 Corinthians. He says, For I am the least of the apostles. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. In Ephesians, he says, although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me. So in other words, I didn't deserve it. I wasn't, Jesus didn't come and call me to follow him because I was such a great person. He says, in spite of all the bad things that I'd done, God poured out his grace on me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And then in 1 Timothy, this is probably the most famous self-description of Paul, because he says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, am the worst. So Paul's describing himself, and then he says, you know, but despite all that in the past, Christ is still willing to use me. And isn't that good news for all of us? That no matter what our past, no matter what bad things that we've said or done, Jesus is willing to forgive us when we put our faith and trust in him. And he's willing to say, now that I have your life, I want to use it. I want to use it in amazing ways for my glory. And would that we follow in Paul's footsteps and, and come to follow Jesus fully. Now, about this book of 2 Corinthians, this letter from Paul, Aside from Paul's resume, you know, he wrote about 13 of the New Testament books. The New, the New Testament and the Bible is a library of books. The New Testament contains 27 of these books. 13 of them at least were written by the Apostle Paul. As a missionary, as a church planter throughout the Roman world in the first century, Paul traveled extensively. He opened up new mission fields. He planted a number of churches in the Roman Empire. The letters that Paul wrote to these churches. They grew out of circumstances in the church. They grew out of experiences that Paul had in his travels. And Paul sets forth the basic theology of the Christian faith. 2 Corinthians is different. 2 Corinthians is unique among these other letters because this particular letter opens wide the windows of Paul's personal life and struggles. If you want to know, like, where does Paul get the most personal when in his writings in the New Testament? Where does Paul reveal all of the, 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 the struggles that he has, all of the frailties that he has, all the weaknesses that he has? Where does Paul do that more than any other letter in the New Testament? And it happens to be this book that we're going to be studying for the next weeks called 2 Corinthians. Chapter 1 gives us an example of this self-disclosure, and he begins with the greeting. Now, in the first century, instead of saying, dear so-and-so, uh, Paul began the greeting by identifying himself, like who is this letter from, and then he'll get into who's the letter being addressed to. So Paul describes himself, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, 
together with all of his holy people or all of his saints throughout all Achaia. Now, that word Achaia, is in, it's a region in southern Greece. It, Greece was divided up into north and south. In the north was Macedonia, in the south was Achaia. And the principal city in Achaia was this great seafaring city, this seaport called Corinth. And he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What we know from church history is that Paul spent 18 months ministering in this city of Corinth, this great city in southern Greece. Paul got off to a very good start in the city of Corinth. It says in Acts chapter 18, it says that Paul spent every Sabbath day in the, in the synagogues he was trying, quote, trying to convince the Jews and Greeks alike. And then, then after Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, which would be northern Greece, Paul spent his full time preaching and testifying to the Jews. And what was Paul's message? He says, the Messiah that you're looking for, talking to the Jewish people, who are always in search of Messiah. Next year in Jerusalem, they would say every, um, every Passover, they would always be looking for Elijah to, to denote the coming of Messiah. And he says, Jews, fellow Jewish brothers and sisters, you're looking for the Messiah. I'm telling you, the Messiah is here. The Messiah has arrived, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. So that was Paul's message to the Jewish people. He had a great start there. There were a number of Jewish converts to the Christian faith. And then Paul continued to bless him because after Silas and uh, Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul started preaching full-time. And he preached among the Gentiles, and it says in Acts chapter 18, after that, Paul, he stayed with Titius Justus, a Gentile who worshiped God and lived next door to the synagogue. He stayed with Crispus, who was the leader, so the leader of the Jewish synagogue. He and all his household believed in the Lord. Many others in Corinth also became believers, and they were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, and he told him, now, this is very interesting because you wonder why would the Lord Jesus stop and speak to Paul in a dream, his apostles, speak to him in a vision and say this particular message. And my, my guess is that Paul was starting to experience opposition, maybe had persecution coming against him, maybe uh, the, the unbelieving Jews were stirring up leaders in the city of Corinth against the apostle Paul, and Paul might have been fearful, he might have been tempted to stop teaching and preaching uh, with the, to the level that he had. And so Jesus himself comes to Paul in a vision at night. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him, don't be afraid. Speak out. Don't be silent. For I am with you and no harm will, and no one will harm you because many people here in this city belong to me. Isn't that a great statement? Many people, Jesus says, many people in this city belong to me. You know, when Lisa and I arrived here in Sebastopol, that was one of our, our, our prayers, that song by Chris Tomlin, God of this city. You're the God of this city. You're the God of this uh, people. You're the Lord of this nation. You are. And when we came here, we said, Lord, you are the God of Sebastopol. You are the God of West Sonoma County. And we pray that you would be glorified. We say, your kingdom come, your will be done. And we take you at your word. When the Lord Jesus told Paul, he says, for I have many people in this city. There are still many people who are going to hear the good news of Jesus. Many people who are going to cross the line of faith and believe in our Lord Jesus Christ as this church, this lighthouse continues to proclaim 
the good news message of Christ. Do you believe that? I believe that. So Paul's life, you know, Corinth was one of of the great cities where he planted a church. Paul's life sort of looks like at this confusing array, there's crossroads and intersections, there's green lights, yellow lights, red lights along his journey. Yet because of God's grace, Paul was never utterly lost. Paul was never without hope. Christ's life was always empowering him and preserving him. And the good news is what Jesus did for Paul, he promises to do for us. Let's go ahead and dig into this chapter Uh, We're going to be in the first 11 verses. It's on page 1171 in your pew Bible. It says, Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. I was reading a commentary, and it said that the word comfort shows up in these passages in in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. The word comfort shows up 10 times, 10 times, and it's contrasting God's comfort with the sufferings and the trials and the pressures that we face in this world. And Paul begins a letter, and he says, you know who God is? We praise our God because God is our compassionate God. He is our merciful comforter. Paul borrows from this Jewish synagogue prayer that calls for God to treat the sinful individual with kindness and love and tenderness, and that is what our God does. God is the source. You want to say, where does our real comfort come from? God is the ultimate source for every true act of comfort. That comfort is similar to the Greek word paraclete. You may be familiar with that word because paraclete is the Greek word that describes the Holy Spirit. So when, God, when he says God is our comforter, he's talking about the Holy Spirit doing what the Holy Spirit does. He comes alongside of us and he helps us in our time of need. And, he, and Paul says he comforts us in all of our troubles. I don't know. I haven't yet met anyone who's gone through this life scot-free, who's gone through this life trouble-free, affliction-free, persecution-free if they're really a follower of Jesus Christ. And the reason I know that is because Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, he said, right before Paul was martyred as a Christian leader, and Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Timothy, remember this, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's just, it's part and parcel of the Christian life. And sometimes it bothers me when I I hear messages about following Christ, and all they say is, follow Jesus, and all your troubles will be over. Follow Jesus, and you're going to be blessed, and you're going to walk in victory no matter where you go. Follow Jesus, and basically the red carpet is just going to roll out before you. And the truth of the matter is, you follow Jesus, and you may end up in the same position that Jesus was, because wherever Jesus was, the kingdom of God was forcefully advancing, 
And Jesus says in Matthew 11 and verse 12, so he's, Jesus is healing people. He's preaching the good news of the kingdom. And instead of getting accepted by Jesus, the religious leaders of the day says, well, yeah, he's healing people. There's miracles happening. But you know what? He's, he's healing people with the power of Satan rather than the power of God. And Jesus, I can just imagine Jesus looking at these people going, are you serious? I, I, am, I am helping. I, the kingdom of God is now coming. The good news of God is here. Your Messiah has arrived, and you're saying the miracles that God is empowering me to do, the, the healings that are happening, you're saying the power for those miracles is coming from Satan rather than God? That's, the, that's just an example of the opposition that Jesus had to feel. Anytime he did good, somebody told him his motives were mixed. Anytime he healed somebody, some, someone said, ah, he's using the devil to do that. Everywhere Jesus went, he experienced this opposition. And Jesus says, a disciple, which is you and me, a learner, a follower, no disciple is above his teacher. If they persecuted me, Jesus says, they will persecute you. And Paul is totally experiencing that. But he's saying, you know, when we have our troubles, when we have our afflictions, it says God is there, and it says praise be to the God, praise be to the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, because he comforts us in all of our troubles. Whenever we experience this crushing pressure, the kind of pressure that tries to weaken us and restrict us and hinder our ministry, our service to God, it says God is there and he's going to comfort us. Dr. Charles Stanley, a great pastor from, from a, a big church in Atlanta, Georgia. I think it's First Baptist Church. Dr. Stanley says this, through our adversities, God trains us. He trains us to trust him in greater ways, and then he trains us in how to comfort others. He trains us in how to comfort others. That's one of the, the benefits of the comfort that God gives to us in our troubles is God says, I don't want you to be a dead end. I don't, I don't want you to be a cul-de-sac. When God does good to you and when he comforts you and when he teaches you and he shows you the pathway that he wants you to walk and he takes you through something, God says, don't just be a dead end cul-de-sac. Be a conduit of God's grace. Be a conduit of his comfort to other people. I was reminded of that by a big blue recycling trash can. I mean, we call it trash can, but you know, we in our house we have three different kinds of trash cans, right? We have the trash trash can which is small, and then we have this gigantic recycling blue trash can, and then we have this green can for the for the waste, for the garden waste, right? And I and this was back in December where we just moved here. It's foggy, it's on a Tuesday morning, and it's like 5:30 in the morning and our dog is scratching on the kennel and I'm like, Argh. And at 5.30 in the morning, you can't wake the dead over there, and Lisa's just going to stay asleep. So I'm the one who wakes up, and I'm like, oh, fine, I'll take Luke out. So I take him out. He must need to, you know, go. So I take him out to the front lawn, and lo and behold, 5.30 in the morning, pitch dark, cloudy, foggy. These two ladies are walking by, and they're walking by in these big, heavy jackets with hats, and they've got these yellow vests on. And I'm looking at them, and I said, hey, what are you guys doing? And and they said, uh, well, we are the, we're from Santa Rosa Recycling, and we're here to check all the trash cans. And literally what they were going around doing, they were checking the difference between the trash can and the recycling can. And they wanted to see what kind of trash was being put in the trash can. And what they told me, and it's kind of a surreal conversation, in the dark with street lights at 
foggy at 5.30 in the morning. I'm like, is this really happening? It's like a dream. But, but we're having this conversation, and they're saying, hey, sir, I don't know if you knew this, but a, a big percentage of what people actually throw away in the trash can, a large percentage of that could actually be recycled. And I'm like, oh, okay, good to know. And I, it's, it's interesting because after that conversation, I am much more mindful to say recycle or trash, recycle or trash. And if it's not a banana peel or something, I'm just going to go recycle. And they say, you guys can sort it out. The point, of, the point of where I'm going with this is says God comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort others in the troubles that they go through. God doesn't want us to be a dead end with the troubles that we face and that he comforts us and helps us to overcome. God wants us to recycle our comfort. He wants us to pass it on. He says, I've comforted you so that you can comfort other people. That's what God wants us to do. So be a recycler of God's comfort. Don't just be a recycler of pain. Anybody can be a recycler of pain. Somebody hurts me. Somebody treats me bad. Okay, fine. I treat others as they treat me. Or they treat me bad and I can't do anything to them, so I'll just pass it on to somebody else. Anybody can be a recycler of pain. It takes a person walking in the spirit full of zeal for God and his kingdom to be a recycler of God's comfort. And so sometimes you say, and this is the question that I asked when I did the promo on Facebook this week on Thursday, and I said, I said, the question of the day is, what possible good can come out of our suffering? What is God up to? What, is, what possible good can God be up to if we have to suffer? Because a lot of times I think we think, oh, we're, I'm suffering. I must have done something wrong. I'm suffering. I must be being punished for something that I've done. Or I do the old, why me, God? You know, why do bad things happen to good people? And the other question is, why do good things happen to bad people? You know, but the, the question, what possible good can come out of our suffering? Well, one of the good things that can come out of our suffering is that God can meet us there in our suffering and that he can comfort us. He can pull us out of that suffering. And so we go on. Let's, let's go on to the last part of the, of the passage that we're going to be studying this morning. Because we go to verse 8, 9, 10, and 11, and Paul is actually in a, in a, in a death-threatening uh, situation where he actually is in such a bad state that he thinks he's going to die. He's under overwhelming pressure. So we go to verse 8, and it says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. Asia is a province, Roman province in the empire. It's in western Turkey now. Big city there was Ephesus, where Paul did a lot of his ministry. And so he says, we experienced all this troubles in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. That's how bad things have gotten. It says, guys, we're going to die. Uh, I, there's no way out of this one. We're under such pressure. There is no exit for this uh, uh, threat that we are facing right now. We despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened, and here's one of the keys to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Why does God let you go through suffering and trials so that we can learn to trust him more and learn to trust ourselves less so that we can practice Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 where it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart 
and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. It's an Old Testament way of saying what Paul's saying right here. That we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And then Paul goes on to say, hey, it's not just that God comforts us with His presence and His power so that we can be comforted, we can uh, end up walking through that trial and come out better on the other side, more like Jesus, but also that, so that we can comfort other people. And then look what he says in verses 10 and 11. He says, he has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. There's this walk of faith, because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. On him, we have set our hope, and that he will continue to deliver us now look at the role of God's people. Look at This is where the Corinthian church comes in. And he says, so what does this have to do with us, Paul? And he says, God will continue to deliver us, Paul says. And he says, verse 11, as you help us by your prayers, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. If somebody asks, you know, why do, we, why do we gather together in God's community? Why does it say in Hebrews 10, so do not forsake the assembling together? One of the reasons we assemble together as God's people is to worship God together, is to honor Him with our lives, is to learn from His Word. But one of the reasons we gather together is to pray for one another. One of the greatest privileges that you can have in your life is if somebody says, hey, I've got a need in my life, would you please pray for me? And praying for that other person lifts them up. Praying for that other person is interceding for them. Praying for that other person is acting like Jesus is acting toward us all the time. Because it says in the book of Hebrews that he's in heaven at the right hand of God. He lives forever to intercede for the saints. So just as Jesus is praying for us, we are to be praying for other people as well. And Paul says, thank you very much for praying for me because I think the reason, Paul says, I think the reason we got out of this incredible death-defying pressure that we were under was because of the prayers of God's people, was because you were interceding on our behalf. We felt that we had received the sentence of death. Wow. And yet Paul comes out of it. And he said, he will rescue us because you are helping to pray for us. Many will give thanks to God because so many people's prayers for our safety have been answered. Paul attributes this reason for his divine, his divine rescue to the intercessory prayers of God's people. So as Christians, that's one thing we learn in the body of Christ. It's one thing we learn in a local congregation is that we, we may have to suffer. We may have to go through trials. Why do we have to suffer, Lord? Well, because God allows it so that we'll learn not to rely on ourselves but upon Christ who raises the dead so that we will learn to trust in the Lord with all of our heart, so that we will learn to lean on him rather than on ourselves so that we can experience his comfort. And I will say this because Paul says over in the Philippian letter, when he talks about wanting to know Jesus in a deeper way, it's very interesting because I remember reading this passage and I remember saying, yeah, this is what I want in my life. I want this, Paul. I want this for me. When you read Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, it, it, it's a wonderful verse and it is a risky verse. 
Because if you really mean it, God may allow you to go through some things in order to experience the presence of Jesus more closely in your life. Paul says this, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. Most of the time I read that, that's where I like to stop. I want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, victory over death and sin. I love that. That's walking in faith and victory, right? But then Paul says, yeah, but I want to know Jesus also by participating in his sufferings. And there's where that word fellowship comes in. Two fellows in the same ship. Participation is that Greek word koinonia. It's that word where we get fellowship. And he says, if I'm going to know Jesus in a deeper way, I'm going to need to know what it's like to suffer. I am going to need to know what it's like to have opposition and have persecution and have people misunderstand me and have people come against me and, and, and in an unjust way. And when that happens and I say, God, why is this happening to me? Why is this? It, this just doesn't seem fair. Why is this coming against me? And I think the Lord Jesus in a moment like that was, do you think you might know a little bit more of how I felt when I came to the earth and I came to save God's people and I came to bring God's light and his truth and his revelation when I came to love people and they turned their back on me, when I came to my own and my own did not receive me? Do you have a little inkling of what I felt in moments like that? And I think it's in moments like that when it says, now I want to know him and I want to know the power of his resurrection. And I also want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Sharing in his sufferings. And he says, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Of even figuring out what it means to die to myself. To die to ego. To die to my own selfish way of life. And saying, I can't just live for myself. I need to live for him who gave his life for me. And when we learn to do that and we experience some trials and pressures and sufferings, we become more like our Savior and we become comforted and we receive his Holy Spirit. And then he says, you know what? I want you to take that comfort that I'm giving you right here and I want you to be a recycler, be a recycler of God's comfort and not just a recycler of God's pain. That's where the Christian life, the paradox of the Christian life comes in. You know, God tells us when you are weak, that is actually when you are strong. When you are giving, that is actually when you are receiving more. That when you lose your selfish life, that's when you're going to find the life in Christ, which is so much better. You, we learn that in dying to self, that is when we actually start living. Amen? It's not an easy truth to share. It's not a Christianity 101 basics of the Christian faith. This is one of those lessons that is that you have to walk with the Lord in order to understand that. You know, Paul completed his three missionary journeys. He's on his way back to Jerusalem. He knows that trials and persecutions are ahead of him. He's got people. Paul has gone his way to Jerusalem, and he has God's people, including a prophet, who wraps a belt around him and says, you're going to be under chains, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem. And yet Paul doesn't turn away from that. Paul says, oh, no, trouble, trial, persecutions? I'm running the other way. Did Paul ever do that? in his life? No, he never did that. And so Paul even summarizes, and he says, here I am, I'm on my way, compelled by the Holy Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. 
Well, wouldn't that be enough to turn the other way? I'm sailing for Spain. You know, I'm going, I'm going the other direction. That's what Jonah did when God called him, right? So Paul, instead of turning the other way, Paul says, no, I got to fulfill what God wants me to do. I've got to know him and the power of his resurrection, and I also need to know him and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. So Paul says, uh, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. To his dying breath, Paul says, if they kill me in the temple grounds of Jerusalem, and they tried to do that in Acts chapter 22, if they try to kill me when I'm testifying to Jesus, so be it. I'll die as a Christian martyr. And Paul says, I'd rather die and be with Christ, which is better by far. Paul had an amazing attitude toward life and death. You know, people would say, shut up, Paul. Shut up speaking about Jesus or we're going to kill you. And Paul says, and? You know, like, so? You know, which is like the ultimate threat. And he says, and so? Because Paul knew where he was going. He knew that his Savior was going to be with him. He knew that if, if it was God's will that somehow Jesus was going to get him out of a death-threatening situation for his own glory. And then, and then Jesus says, okay, Paul, I brought you out of situations like that. I have comforted you. I have walked with you in the fire. And now I want you to take that, that experience that you have, that story, and I want you to share it with other people so they can learn what it's like to walk in a deeper way with me. That's where Paul is sharing. And so Paul says, all glory and all my weaknesses... You know why? Because when I'm weak, when I'm weak, when I'm not, when I'm weak, which would be trusting in my own understanding, which would be relying on myself, when I'm weak, actually, then I put that selfish life away and I start following Jesus and I die to self. And he says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And so he glories in the weaknesses so that Christ's power can rest on him. Now that's in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians. It's going to be a while before we get there. But we're going to be on this journey through this book together. What are the action points that you can take home today? These are in your bulletin. Action points. Number one, do not hide your humanity. Don't hide your humanity. It's directly linked to your authenticity. The more human Paul was to these believers in Corinth, the more real and authentic and believable and admiring they were of him. Paul's sharing his heart. He's being transparent. He's being real with them. And instead of thinking, oh, he's, be, he's, he's weaker than we thought he was, instead of saying he was weak, they loved him all the more for it. Because authenticity is, is more important than, being, than putting up a phony front of how great you are in your Christian life. Do not hide your humanity. Number two, do not hide your weaknesses and inadequacies. Paul was certainly willing to put all his life on the line in front of them. Why? Because they are open doors to God's strength, to God's strength. And when you see somebody relying on God rather than on themselves, they become even more endearing to you and me. Do what Paul did. Allow your pressures and your troubles to draw you into a deeper dependence upon God. So like Paul, we learn that art in 2 Corinthians 1.9. We learn not to rely on ourselves, but on God who can raise the dead. Number three, do not hesitate to call for help from God and from one another. That's another reason why we gather together, to say, you know, I, I, the, as much as I try to live this Christian life on my own, 
I fall short. I need God's help. I need the strength of God's people. I need the encouragement. I need the inspiration. I need to hear somebody else's story and how they walked through a similar trial and God brought them through to the other side. And that inspires me to say, I'm not quitting. I'm not giving up. So don't hesitate to call for help from God and from other people. And then number four, when, not if, because God promises. That's why he's called the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. He will comfort us in our affliction. When God comforts you, extend his compassion to others. Be a recycler of God's comfort, not just a recycler of his pain. Amen? Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your presence today. Thank you that, that the plea, the prayer that we had in that song, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Thank you for being here among us, Lord. Thank you for your promise that to us that no matter what kinds of trials or opposition or pressures we face, no matter what kind of suffering you may allow us to go through, Lord, help us to remember that in each of those difficulties that your Holy Spirit that he is right there with us and that he's willing to give us that extra measure of comfort that we need in the right time and in the right moment. And God, help us to have a big enough vision of you and your kingdom so that that vision, your kingdom come, it can propel us through these momentary trials that we have to face. And Lord, we pray to you who is the father of compassion and the God of all comfort. God, help us to see others who are hurting in need. Help us not just to be so inwardly focused on ourselves. Help us to be mindful, to have that spiritual antenna, to notice other people around us who might be in need. And Lord, use us to reach out and to comfort them. Help us to pass on some of our stories. Help us to be the wounded healers who can show people some of our spiritual scars and to say that, yeah, yeah, we have some scars, but scars are a sign of healing of a former wound so that we can help comfort them with the comfort that you have given to us. Lord, strengthen our resolve to see your kingdom come and your will be done. Help us to be those prayer warriors who intercede on behalf of other people who are going through these trials and, and Lord, may in the end, may you just get all the credit and all the honor and all the glory for it. Grow us as a church. Strengthen us as a church body. Help us to do our part to be unified and whole and healthy. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to close with a rousing song, <laughs> which is uh, a, one of a chorus.